1: This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the sectarian review podcast. I have a uh, I think extra special episode for you today. Um, We have an odd show as my regular listeners know we uh, just we talk about intersections between lots of things that most people don't put together and today's a perfect example of that we're going to be talking about a really particularly interesting intersection between horror and and uh, theology. In particular, we're going to be talking about Stephen King with uh, Doug Cowan, who recently published a book um, published by NYU Press uh, called America's Dark Theologian, um, Stephen King and Theology, basically. What's the, the subtitle? The Religious Imagination of Stephen King. Um, and so before I begin, I want to thank um, Doug's um, editor at, uh, someone at NYU for reaching out to me uh, about this show, Sidney Garcia. Uh, very grateful for setting this up. And uh, and I want to welcome Doug
0: to the show. Doug, how are you you doing? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me, Danny. It's really great to be here.
1: Um, I'm very excited. I have to say, anytime. Um, A publisher reaches out to me and offers me a free book. I'll probably take it Um, And it's all the better if the book is really good and I have to um, Say right up from the outset. uh, I really did like this book a lot. It was um, interesting and accessible I told you before we started recording that um, I've read some Stephen King, but not um, nearly as much as you have and that did not um, Impede my understanding of your argument at all. I could follow it really well And uh, and I think this book is gonna be very interesting to my
0: listeners Great. Thank you. I, you know, I'm really grateful to hear that because that's the way I wrote the book. Um, I didn't, you know, you have to give us away a certain number of spoilers yeah. just to make the argument that you're making, but you don't want to give so much away that people don't want to read the book now, but also you've got to give enough that people who haven't for whatever reason, and there's lots of reasons that people have not read Stephen King. they, that they don't feel excluded from the discussion. So I, the, the the ideal thing that I want is a reader to read this. And if they're a longtime Stephen King fan, they can go, oh, that's not a way I've looked at it before. <laughs> that's interesting. I should buy 12 copies of this for my friends. Yeah. Or, or somebody who has not read Stephen King. Or, as we talked about earlier, has maybe only seen them i've seen stephen king's stories in movies or television because they don't translate very well Mm -hmm. um this is about sorry this is about his horror fiction so there's certain things i ignore i don't deal with eye of the dragon i don't deal with the dark tower because he's real clear that those are high fantasy Mm. and i want to concentrate on his scary stories and see what they can tell us about religion
1: yeah, exactly. And just so um, to make it clear, your intention is not to do uh, an exa- analysis of religious representations so much in King. It's to make an argument that King's work is doing the same
0: work as theology. Um, yeah, that's a that's essentially it. I mean, what this isn't, and, and this is why I kind of count two and a half stars from Christianity today for me as something of a win, actually, um, <laughs> because what this is not— Quite explicitly not. This is not the gospel according to Stephen King. Right. Okay. I mean you've seen all of those kind of books before, right? Um it's not uh it's not horror in place of religion. It's not horror as an example of religion's lack of power in our culture, which is to say secularization. What I think of it is as is this is uh, uh, examining horror that's written alongside religion. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is horror and religion are cultural siblings in that they are, especially supernatural horror, they are concerned with exactly the same questions of meaning you can't really do a theology of stephen king because there is no theology of stephen king not the way there would be with somebody like uh h.p lovecraft you know we can put the you can pull the Cthulhu mythos together right you can't do that with stephen king or philip k dick you could even do it but mm. not stephen king Interesting.
1: Well, I, I can't wait to get into the details of the book though, but I want to first uh, let my listeners know a little bit about you. Uh, okay. What is uh, sort of your background and how does this book maybe fit into your larger interests?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a junkyard dog <laughs> when, it, when it comes to because, I mean, I, I, you know, my original, my original degree was in English literature and Russian language. And then I, I kind of got sidetracked and I did an MDiv and I was actually a uh, United Church of Canada minister for 11 years. Okay. And I served uh, pastorates in southern uh, southern Alberta. And, you know, when I was in Calgary, I did my PhD and, you know, wound up uh, in Kansas City uh, as a sociologist of religion. And early on, I wrote about new religious movements, cults and new religions. I wrote about religion on the internet. I wrote a book about modern pagans.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then about, I want to say 2006, maybe, I was, uh, or 2005, I was actually um, kind of sick. And I was, you know, the flu. And I I was, the local television station in Kansas City was running a Hellraiser marathon. I don't know if you remember the Hellraiser oh, movies. of course, yeah. I mean, and they're on, like, what, number 15 now and, or something? And,
1: in fact, Doug Bradley, the person who plays uh, Pinhead, is coming to the local uh, Comic-Con
0: here in December. And I'm considering oh, that's going just... awesome. <laughs> just Because, <laughs> you know what? He's the real Pinhead. <laughs> Anybody else they've gotten after him is not the real deal. True. Right? So... Anyway, so I'm watching this, and I'd never seen them before. Um, I'd seen them in the video store, but I'd never watched them, so I started watching them. And you remember, you may remember in the fourth one, which is the one that takes place in space. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's almost universally reviled <laughs> among Hellraiser fans. The main character comes in at one point, and he kind of skids to a stop. And he goes, Oh my god! And Doug Bradley, as Pinhead, goes do i look like someone who cares what god thinks (laughs) and i swear the whole structure of my first religion and pop culture book was just called sacred terror religion and horror on the silver screen just fell into place at that moment and i started asking the, the question um with all the scary things that are in the world we talked about your recent election um why do we keep going back to religion religious characters religious tropes religious rituals religious trappings religious locations religious ideas why do we keep going back to that well to tell a scary story Mm -hmm. and when i started looking into it i found out that really not a lot of people had paid attention to it because One person said, like one, you know, very well placed, he was the editor of the Journal of Religion and Film. He was reviewing a film called Stigmata. Mm -hmm. And he said, you don't expect to find religion and spirituality in a horror film. And I went, dude, you just haven't been paying attention. (laughs) It's a ridiculous claim, right? (laughs) Exactly. You've been shopping in the wrong section of the store then i read another guy who was at boston university and he says um, well the only reason you see religion and i'm paraphrasing the only reason you see religion in a horror film is because people have a lack of respect for religion now and it's it's about secularization i don't think either one of those things are true no i think what it does horror more than science fiction uh uh certainly more than rom-coms horror uh, reinforces this really ambivalent relationship we have with whatever we consider the supernatural order. Because on the one hand, you know, I play this game with my graduate students. I play the proof God exists game. Nobody's won yet. <laughs> so we already have this, like, what if it doesn't work the way we think it does what if it doesn't work the way religion has told me it does and this is what stephen king does he goes every time you think you have the answer check this shit out (laughs) right
1: that's right um yeah and so let's get into some of the more details about king's work like what are the the concerns of his work and like you said it's not a necessarily unified uh uh, ontological universe that he's dealing mm-hmm. with. He's asking these kind of theological questions from a number of different angles and in right. a number of different ways. So what is right. uh, what is it that you see in his work in particular?
0: What he's way more interested it's a really good question, what he's really interested in is questions rather than answers and more importantly he's interested in questioning answers. Ah, excellent. Through stories. Does that make sense? Yes. Through story. So for example um, a lot of people, if you, if you read anything other than my book about religion and Stephen King, you will know that most people think The Stand is his most religious book. Exactly. It isn't, not by a country mile, <laughs> um, because for a number of reasons. One is great conflicts of good and evil are not limited to religious worldviews. So, you know, religion doesn't get to own great conflicts between good and evil, right? Right. But more to the point, the stand takes place on this grand scale when most religion doesn't. Most religious behavior takes place at the level of what the hell does it mean that something bad has happened in my life? Mm -hmm. For me, one of the most religious books of his, the one that – digs at these theological questions the most is a 1990s novel called Desperation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And Desperation is about a small group of people trapped in an abandoned Nevada mining town by an evil entity called Tak. And it takes place through the eyes of a 12-year-old boy who had a experienced God around the interior uh, of his best friend. This is how a lot of sort of spiritual quests, or religious thinking, or theological thinking, or wondering about God—however you want to call it, whatever you want to call it—this is how they begin mm-hmm. with these these questions on uh, how did how does the world work, right? And David has this experience. What this book details in really in a way that none of his other books do is why do we suffer? What does it mean to believe in God? Why does God seem so cruel? Mm -hmm. Right? Why do bad things happen for no good reason at all? And how do we know if the God we think is God is actually in control? Yeah, I mean, those are principal questions that, I mean, if you, you know, you have Christian listeners, for example, the whole theological discipline of apologetics yeah is about saying why you should believe our story and not somebody else's, right? Exactly.
1: And, and that that's a good um, segue into my next kind of follow-up question. Uh, King himself is kind of Uh, not particularly, he's not devout. He calls himself a fallen Methodist, I believe. He's a lapsed Methodist. A
0: lapsed Methodist. Or fallen away Methodist.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so he's not um, someone who's trying, uh, I I think you can see his work as a a response to that very kind of sure kind of Christianity that provides answers about the meaning of life. And he's providing theological questions um, that undermine the stability of those answers and therefore allow us to experience religion in a deeper way uh you put it at one point in your book uh religiously speaking then and this is king's point throughout his work we barely know where we are let uh, let alone understand where we came from how we got here or where we're going right and so he wants to kind of tackle that sure position of religion
0: and this yeah and this is why i call the book america's dark theologian not america's dark theology Mm. Right. And the difference is key because we have, you know, and and the academy and the church bear equal responsibility here, that we have made theology sort of the the province of professionals. So if you teach theology in a in a in a university like I do, and I'm a religious studies scholar, I have to constantly tell my students, I don't teach theology. Mm -hmm. Okay. I will teach you about it. But that's a subtle, but not insignificant difference. Yeah. So you've got that in the academy, but then in the church, you have the whole sort of um, you have the whole priest caste, whatever you call them, call them ministers, priests, rabbis, imams, mullahs, call them whatever the hell you want. But it's a priest class that reserves for itself the right to make pronouncements on theology. In point of fact, and it does a tremendous disservice to humankind. Both of those do a tremendous service to humankind in this respect. We all do theology. Yeah, We may not do it all the time. We may not do it even every day, but we all do it from a question like, if God loves me, why did my mom die? Mm -hmm. To, if God loves us, What the hell is going on in Syria, Mm. right? You ask those kind of questions. You are doing theology when you say, um, "Jesus died for my sins." Really? How do you know that? Well, because I read it in my Bible, and I and I and I trust my Bible. You're doing theology. It may not be tremendously sophisticated. It may not be um, systematic. In any, in, in any recognizable sense, um, but it is no less authentic. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the difference between religious questions and human questions. When you think about religious questions, you think about these big questions. What are the religious questions? Well, where do we come from? Where are we going? Does life have a purpose? Why do we suffer? Those kinds of things, right? Those are not religious questions. Religions claim to have answered them, Many religions claim to have answered them exclusively mm-hmm. and to have the only answer for them. But they're not religious questions. They are human questions. They are properly human questions. We ask them because we are human, not because we participate in this faith community or that. And that's one of the things that, because King thinks questions are way more interesting than answers, and yeah. so do I, quite yeah. frankly. Sure. Um, so he is constantly poking. As you pointed out earlier, just it's right on point. He's constantly poking at every time you come up and you think you have an answer. How about looking at it this way yeah. and see where we get? Yeah, um it's Socrates, right? it's yeah. It goes
1: all the way back, right? Um, oh,
0: yeah, it's not new. <laughs> yes, but I mean, I mean, that's a. If I can insert a shameless plug here. <laughs> I have another book coming out in January oh, great. called Magic Monsters and Make Believe Heroes: oh, How Myth and Religion Shape Fantasy Culture. And we in in that book I go into much more detail about why we tell the same stories over and over and over and over and it's because the answers are contingent, but the questions remain forever.
1: Yeah, Does uh, that make sense? It does, and I look forward to that book. I, maybe I can have you back on to talk about it when it comes out. Um, uh, that And actually, you're talking a few episodes ago, I interviewed uh, a person who's a, a Baptist minister who runs a Dungeons & Dragons game for other Baptist ministers. and, and, and you, it, I love that. Yes, he's getting into the same kind of thing. There's something valuable about um, storytelling and and these kind of not-dynamic Dactic forms of uh, of uh, encountering the world that is uh, well rel- yeah.
0: religion is storytelling yeah religion is not based on facts it's based on stories whether those stories have a factual basis or not yeah right you know there's that mistranslation of Tertullian quio uh, uh, Credo quia absurdum I believe because it is absurd yeah you know these are about he's talking about the stories that make no sense whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, my wife tells the story of getting kicked out of Sunday school when she was very young and the question for asking questions. And the question that she asked was, where did they poop? (laughs) Right. And I, I mean, I, I use that example in class and every student, whether they are Christian or not knows the story I'm talking about. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, (laughs) <laughs> we are I, I i am more and more and more becoming convinced that i mean we got what there's like one percent of our dna that separates us from bonobos mm-hmm. right we share 60 percent of our dna with bananas <laughs> despite what ray comforts us right so all of a sudden dna is not tremendously interesting to me yeah What is it that makes us human? For me, what makes us human is the fact that we are the only species, insofar as we know, right, insofar as we know, that actively wonder about our place in the universe and what it means to have that place. Mm. And we are the only species, insofar as we know, that creates that meaning through story. Yeah.
1: And that's where King steps in for us right here. Exactly right. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned um, academia in conjunction with you know religious leaders, and and I think that a, a, leads to a question I have: Why is it, do you think, that academia has been reluctant or slow or even dismissive of doing this sort of um, deep exploration of? quote-unquote popular writers like King. Like he's, yeah. for the amount of, the importance he places or he, he holds in American literary history, um, there's an incredibly slight amount of research like in an academic uh, circles about him. And so
0: why do you suppose that is? Well, it, it, you know, it's I'm glad you brought that up because Harold Bloom, who I call the so-called dean (laughs) of of American literary criticism. I hope he's listening. Um, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, right. He called King an immensely inadequate writer. And then he goes on to say, the only thing of value in writers like King is that he keeps the publishing industry afloat. (laughs) And I go, dude, you do not know what you just wrote, do you? Because, um, you know, I've read, I've read David Foster Wallace. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, all right. It's 300, 400 pages of relentless (laughs) self-indulgence. I get that. Um, But it is books like Stephen King's 300, 400 million copies sold that actually keep the publishing industry afloat. So in point of fact, Harold Bloom is right. Mm -hmm. Stephen King is a sociological phenomenon. But he, he thinks that that's a negative thing. Yeah. I look at it and go, what is it that's going on in his books that makes so many millions of people want to read them, carry them around, read them to tatters, pass them around, read them over and over and over? One of the things that, um, put it this way, how many conversations, Danny, have you been involved in that began, so did you read in the latest uh, issue of the Journal of Neuroscience (laughs) that that ganglial cell research? God, that was awesome, dude, right? Yeah. How many, how many, now, I, I don't know your background, but how many conversations have you been in that began on a Wednesday with so the pastor's sermon last Sunday that was a r- right we don't have those conversations but how many conversations have you been in that began hey did you see the latest episode of The Walking Dead yeah can you believe that Rick is gonna die <laughs> right or uh, yeah sorry <clears throat> or did you see the latest Doctor Who. There's a female doctor, and that's awesome. Or did you read the latest Stephen King book? Right. The thing about popular culture is there has been this artificial separation in the academy, and the academy is principally responsible for this. There's been this artificial uh, distinction between literature and fiction. Mm -hmm. If you read Hemingway, you're reading literature. If you're reading Clive Barker, you're reading fiction. It's all stories right it's all stories that affect people and one of the things that i've tried to do is is in sacred terror by looking at it by looking at religion through the lens of horror movies is basically say put the academy on notice this is why you have to take this seriously yeah right this is why you have uh i did the same thing with science fiction in a book called sacred space yeah adt fantasy the idea that we don't live by these highbrow concepts. We don't live with these highbrow ways of looking at the world, these artificial distinctions. We live in the the, um, popular culture is like the atmosphere that we are constantly breathing in, going out, whether we recognize it or not, whether we like it or not. I mean, you know, when you say to, to a group of people, name me the Stephen King novel that has a clown in it, and balloons. Yeah. An awful lot of them will go it, and only half of them will have read it. Yeah. Yet it's there. Yeah. We know about it. And by the way, I said earlier that, um, that most of Stephen King's works do not translate or have not been translated very well to the screen. The latest, it is an exception. Yes, I really liked it. I did too. Yeah, and not for nothing, it was filmed about twenty miles from where I live, and I where I ride my motorcycle half the time.
1: <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I actually wrote a little essay um, that I published, um, making an argument that Christians specifically should go see it uh, last year when it came out because of the the kinds of the moral universe that it presents about the town of Derry itself, right? right? And
0: what we're and, doing to each other, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, and Derry is banger. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in in the Stephen King universe, Derry is banger, and and Derry is never. Things never go well in Derry. Right, <laughs> Derry is always the site of, uh, like Castle Rock. You know, I mean, it kind of floats along, right? It, right, things could go. Things could go bad, that they could kind of settle out again, but. It's like nothing ever goes right for dairy.
1: Yeah, I um, I want to hold off on that because when you talk about that in terms of cosmology at some point, mm-hmm. um, and I want to hold off that uh, for just a little bit, but we will get back sure. to dairy. Um, and yes, I totally agree. There was uh, just last night, I believe, I read something in Inside Higher Ed. Someone was talking about uh, the fact that they did a study about who's actually citing academic research, and even within academia. Uh, no one's reading academic writing let alone outside well, of academia
0: <laughs> yeah yeah which is which is why which is why i don't write articles anymore for peer-reviewed publications because i know this is going to sound strange to your listeners but i would actually like people to read what i write yes <laughs> this is
1: why i do a podcast instead of writing academic articles um yeah to exactly be right quite exactly honestly yeah
0: right. um,
1: and and yes i totally agree and in fact um, i can speak from personal experience this is something to bear in mind for teachers those of my listeners who are uh, college instructors, and I know there's quite a few of you out there. Um, I have had a lot more success getting at those interesting questions that you think you can only get through through Faulkner um, by teaching my horror film class and my sci-fi yeah. film class. And this semester, I'm teaching a, de- a detective fiction class. And those forms of popular genre fiction have opened up much more interesting conversations with my students about the same theoretical concepts about from all the way from feminism to Marxism to queer theory, um, all the way down the gambit, the way that academics like to talk about things. I have a lot more success looking at genre uh than i do anything that's quote unquote highfalutin
0: oh yeah i mean i mean pet cemetery yeah little factoid he didn't want to publish pet cemetery oh yeah at that point at that point in his life even he thought it went too far (laughs) but he had one book left on a contract i i want to say it's to viking but i'm open to correction on that um and his wife tabitha so we've got pet cemetery and he said no that just we killed a two-year-old boy in that one you know so (laughs) it goes but that's i mean i use that book to teach the ritual process, yeah, it is as though he had a, 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 and I don't know, he it is as though if he he had a, a, a copy of Victor Turner's The Ritual Process open on the desk beside him, mm. because that journey, that the night journey that Lewis and Judd take when they're going to bury the cat, yeah that's the ritual journey yeah. it it has leaving the safety behind liminality right. you have to have it's it's transgression versus trespass or yeah. transcendence versus trespass yeah there is a thing that changes and then you return yeah
1: amazing um, and yeah and that book is that, that is one of the king books that I have read and it is truly terrifying like it really yeah. is a scary book to read yeah. um, and there's a movie adaptation coming out I've seen the previews for that um, looks like it's trying to capture the gravity of that book
0: more than the old version of it did um, and so yeah. yeah I'm looking forward to that Well, although Denise Crosby can I just say yeah. Denise Crosby is I'm, I'm a huge Tashi Yar ER fan and Denise Crosby <laughs> I met her at a uh, at a comic con not too long ago and I was telling her that I used pets I was using, in fact, Pet Cemetery the very next day in my <laughs> pop culture class, and she says, "Oh, let me sign a photo from <laughs> Pet Cemetery to your class." So that was very classy of her. Oh, that's amazing! And incidentally, she's
1: also going to be at that same Comic Con here in Pittsburgh uh, in uh, in December. So uh, the world is collapsing here for us. Um, so, um, and so before we get, uh, let's go ahead and get into some of the. Um, um, uh arguments that you make you talk about a number of different theological kinds of questions that king asks um and you started talking a little bit about ritual just now with pet cemetery do you want to Mm -hmm. talk about that book and and how it works in the, the 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 argument that you're making about king's work here
0: yeah i mean one of the things that and this goes back to your comment about why academia doesn't pay attention to genre fiction is because they believe it doesn't have anything to communicate about what we believe mm-hmm. or things of importance that we believe. well, rich religious ritual is is one of the frameworks that we hang beliefs on. And religious ritual comes in a number of different forms. I could give them a textbook that says, like yourself in your own classes, I could give them the textbook that outlines. I could make them read Victor Turner, but, you know, the jokes don't translate very well. And, you know, I could get them to read that. And I know that, first of all, none of them would do it. Right. Maybe five of them would do it. But more to the point, um, they will not be gripped by it in a way that makes it real for them in any particular way. Pet Cemetery is a good example because there's this section in pet cemetery and I talk about it a little bit in the book. there's this section in pet cemetery where Lewis is having this conversation with his daughter and he's trying to explain the concept of death to his daughter and I think I call that like uh, like a mini seminar in, the religious uh, in, in
1: comparative religion is how you put it. Pet cemetery includes what amounts to a mini seminar in comparative religion, a crash course on the different ways people deal with death.
0: Right. And because he says, you know, Buddhists believe this. And, you know, some people believe that we recycle that we or she calls it carnation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As, as she calls it carnation, we recycle and then other people believe that something else happens. This is how we teach students about the differences in religious belief. The other thing is really important about that section, and if I wasn't as clear about this as I should have been, maybe, it, you know, is that supernatural horror and religion have this in common in a way that no other genre have. Both of them posit that this is not the end. Both of them posit that whatever happens. And um, I say to my classes, listen, nobody knows what happens after we die. I don't know what happens after we die. And by the way, neither do you, (laughs) right? What we have are stories about what happens after we die. And we advert or adhere to one set of stories or another based on what we were, you know, we were raised with, but, what Pet Cemetery does is said there's all these different ways of looking at, it. and at the end of that section, Lewis says, I think the thing that they all agree on is that we go on, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, I have this concept that I teach in my classes. I say theology recapitulates cosmology. Mm-hmm. What you believe about the gods is the way you lens how the world works, Yeah, right? So what Stephen King is doing with— Pet Cemetery, or with um, with desperation for example or under the dome what he's doing with those books is saying what if the way you've been told the world works is not actually the way it works Mm -hmm. what if it works like this for example there's a short story called that thing you can only say what it is in French Mm -hmm. that's about deja vu And what it is, it's about one woman's experience at the moment of death. And she remembers this thing where her husband says to her, maybe what you get after death is what you expect to get or what those who taught you taught you to expect. There's two things that are really important about that. One is that that's a really good kind of – Precee of what's called Chitta Mantra Buddhism, mind-only mm. Buddhism, that everything we experience is the product of our own consciousness. So therefore, whatever we expect as a result of that consciousness is actually what we're going to get once we die. It also brings up the issue of religious socialization. Yeah. If the Buddhist, if the Chita Mantra Buddhists like Yogacara Buddhists are correct and We've been taught to expect hell, let's say. If our expectation is hell and our consciousness creates what we expect, what do you get when you die? That's why religious socialization figures in that there it figures in it's, it plays a huge part in um, the shining. yeah, right? Yes. And you know there's this there's this scene in the shining, which is not in the film. Mm-hmm. Where little Jack is in Sunday school. Okay. And his nun, his the teacher, sister, whatever her name is, um, shows them one of those um, pictures that uh, it looks like a jumble until you kind of like look at it with a side eye and a squint. And then it kind of resolves into a picture. Uh-huh. Right. And and she shows him the class this picture and suddenly somebody goes, It's Jesus. And she calls it a miracle picture. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not a miracle. It was there all along, right? But you gotta look at it a certain way and he never sees it. And then finally he lies about it. And he gets his shiny prize. But at the end of it, at the end of that that sequence, he's like, Am I gonna go to hell because I lied about seeing the face of Jesus in this picture? And it's this great, I mean, it goes on for five or six pages, but it's this really, really great example of the power of religious socialization. You see that in it as well. Yeah. Um,
1: and that's a really great passage from your book, actually, where you, that's a really great example of the close readings that you do of King's work that um, really make powerful cases for the argument that you're making. Um, yeah, because that's a perfect example of a way in which a person is sort of trained to see something and given answers that are acceptable by the religious authorities and and then... Um, King's book is all about dismantling and deconstructing those answers uh, and right. returning them to the realm of question. Um, right. uh, absolutely. That was just a wonderful um, um, passage in your book as well. Um, and yeah, so um, and the idea then of ritual as being a way to kind of um, practice the thing that we believe <laughs> right? right. Uh, that we've been yeah. taught is correct. Is Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's, that's great. Another question, uh, another sort of approach, uh, a theological question that King's mm-hmm. work asks is that of theodicy. It's like the sort mm-hmm. of the, why is there pain
0: in the world? Right. Why right. is there
1: suffering? And so, um, you have a really interesting chapter about that. Do you want to talk just a little bit about, uh, how you see that working?
0: Is that the, is that the chapter on the four varieties of religious experience? Yes. Like with Vera and, uh, yeah. I mean, what I, what he does is I, through these four characters, just carry. White's mother in Carrie, who I think is actually the most important character in the book mm-hmm. of Carrie, in the book Carrie, Vera Smith from The Dead Zone, uh, Charlie Jacobs from Revival, and the Methodist minister, the, the Congregationalist minister's name escapes me from Under the Dome,
1: okay. whatever,
0: whatever her name was. They all have different experiences of religion that orbit around questions of, why do we suffer? For example, uh, Carrie White's mother believes that everything that happens to her is a result of this, the surveillance of this domineering, punishing God. She's suffering because she deserves to suffer. Because she, I mean, this goes right back to Augustine and Tertullian and, and you know, this idea that um, this the, the dualism, right? Right. Sure. A sort of Aristotelian dualism between spirit and flesh, and flesh keeps us from fully experiencing spirit. Right. And what so what she has is this sort of hyper-Calvinism that she lives with, although what's really interesting is it's a hyper-Calvinism that is kind of larded with the most grotesque kind of Roman Catholic imagery. <laughs> and And it's all topped off with Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what she is. She is Jonathan Edwards, sinner in the hands of an angry God. Then you've got Vera Smith. And Vera is the mother of a young man in the dead zone who has an accident, is in a coma for a number of years. For Vera, everything that happens to her is not the result of punishment. Her way of thinking about why she's suffering is that it is all part of God's plan, at which she is the center. Mm-hmm. Right? If uh, when when um, her son wakes up, it's because God wanted it that way because she's been faithful. When he has the accident, we have to get on our knees and pray. Why? Why did it's because her husband. It's because of the cigars you smoke and the beers you drink with the guys after work right So she's look she's always so the difference is Carrie White's mother internalizes this sense of loathing yeah for herself that she feels God must feel for her and visits it on her daughter and pretty much everybody else she comes right. in contact with. Vera, takes on all of the same kinds of things but externally locates them. Yeah. It's got to be somebody else's fault because I'm at the center of God's plan, right? Yeah. Then you've got Charlie Jacobs and Charlie and I wish I could remember her name off the bat, but um, Charlie and and the the Methodist, the minister from under the dome both suffer exactly the same loss. They suffer the sudden death of their families. Wife and children, wife and child, husband, and children, and both of them move along the path from that. That a lot of people who deal with questions of suffering move along is the the movement from belief to non-belief. Yeah. Now, Charlie and and one of the reviewers of my of the book of the manuscript, I don't know that if I ever I don't know that I ever convinced this person. <laughs> Um, but they, uh, you know, my argument, did you read the book? My argument is that revival is to Frankenstein as Salem's lot is to Dracula.
1: Oh, <laughs> I gotcha. Right. Yes. Yes.
0: Right. Yes. If Salem's lot is his nod to Bram Stoker, um, revival is, his nod to Mary Shelley. I remember this. Yes. And, um, What the main character, even though the main character abandons faith in God, even as he leaves his congregation, he never gives up searching for the answer to what happens when we die. Mm -hmm. And in that book is a really great example of what King does is say, what happens? Yeah, we go on. But what happens if what happens after we die is so terrifying that we can only hope that our glim- brief glimpse of it was a moment of madness, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Then in Under the Dome, um, I think maybe your name is Piper? Is that Does that ring a bell?
1: Uh, that's possible, yeah. I, I can't I pull can. him out myself, yeah.
0: But – You know, she loses her family, and gradually she starts praying to the great not there. Yeah. Right? And what's different about the cosmology in under the dome is Stephen King says, well, what if it were all just, you know, like the ants that we used to torment, that there is no God out there? Because in point of fact, there's all kinds of super religious people in under the dome none of them survive yeah none of their prayers are answered they all die choking and in pain yeah because what king is saying is the way you think the world works is not the way it works there's no roast beef and mashed yeah with jesus right there's just pain and death,
1: <laughs> and and the I think the value for a Christian reader of of what you're teasing out of King's argument there is that so if I'm poking holes in an assumption that you have about the afterlife or salvation, that isn't necessarily meant to give you get you to give it up, but get you to continue to think about the nature of these things, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point because I mean, this is why he never presents. I don't think he presents a theology. Of his own, he's not trying to say you should not uh, hold any beliefs. Yeah. What he's saying is, look, you better have damn good reasons for the beliefs that you do hold, because one of the things about exclusive religious claims, Christianity makes them, Islam makes them, Judaism to a certain degree, but not so much. Uh, other groups is every time you come in contact with a different belief system. It challenges the, legitis- the legitimacy of what you are claiming, Yeah, which is why people get so freaking upset about defending their own particular belief territory. Yeah, And so one of the things that we, you know, uh, Stephen Prothero wrote a book called Religious Literacy, and basically he argues that... Um, religious we're basically religiously illiterate even though we may be
1: perfectly devout we don't know much about what we're devout about. oh exactly exactly
0: and in in point of fact he says it's this inverse correlation yeah that um we are absolutely devout or the american people are absolutely devout they just don't know much about what they're devout about (laughs) exactly and um so you know, and and I think that um, Stephen King kind of points at the same kind of thing. If you are going to, you know, stake your eternal respite on a belief, maybe it's incumbent on you to interrogate that belief yourself, rather than simply relying on the weekly stories. Of somebody in whom you have reposed that trust, right?
1: Yeah, it's a, a you bear a certain responsibility for your own kind of belief, right? You know? Exactly, yeah. exactly, and, exactly. And um, and just to kind of defend this for the academicians out there, again, um, I mean Catherine Ann Porter's story, "The Jilting of Granny Weatherall," is doing the same kind of thing, like by narrating this religious woman's life, and then at the end, there's not there what she expected there to be, sort of from the afterlife, and so, quote unquote. Capital L literature um, asks these kinds of questions as, as well. Who's read The Jilting of Camp
0: Jane yeah, exactly. you know Weatherall? Some of them are just a little bit hard to get into. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, Moby Dick's a great book. Yes. It's also a doorstop. It is. Right? And and I and I think that some people, and, and I know I'm I'm sort of smacking David Foster Wallace around a little bit <laughs> lately, but he, he's a good writer, but he's not a great storyteller. Right. In my view. Yeah. And what Stephen King is, Stephen King would be the first to tell you he's not a great writer, but he's a great storyteller. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that you get caught up in his stories because he's talking about people we recognize and live with and see in the mirror every day. This relentless sameness that is us. Yeah, he's not talking about, you know, uh, people who exist on another sort of level, another fictional plane. You see his characters yeah. like when you read something like Needful Things, right? you know those people right right you know the the catholics who were fighting with the protestants and, <laughs> you know sniping at each other behind you know those people who are sure they have god on their side even as they're going well you know we don't really yeah i know i did some and she's just a catholic <laughs> exactly um exactly and and just to kind of um again
1: uh maybe defend this way of thinking about theology to more orthodox or conservative Christians who might be listening. Um, Back in the nineties, I used to live in New York city and I happened to go to Tim Keller's church. who's sort of pretty famous um, uh, Presbyterian minister. And I remember specifically um, sermons in which he would talk about how he thinks all Christians should move to New York city at one point in their life, because then they would be confronted with people from other faiths who are better people than them. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so um, yeah. to challenge uh, your own kind of certainties about your own faith. And so this is someone from the pulpit uh, and from a very kind of, you know, normal orthodox
0: conservative sure. position yeah. uh, who's making a very similar argument, I think. On the yeah, I mean, I Kennedy. think, I mean, I certainly wouldn't, I, it's what I call the good moral and decent fallacy. This belief that this mistaken belief, and by the way, it's an, it's, it's endemic in the church or sorry, endemic in the Academy. Yeah. Um, this belief that, you can use goodness, morality, and decency as the defining characteristics of when something is religious. Yes, and that if it's not what we consider good, not what we consider moral, or not what we consider decent, it is by it is therefore by definition not religious or false religion or something like that. That's madness. Right. There are you know there are good people who are religious, and there are bad people who are bad for uh, on religious grounds yes right and 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 you don't have to pick on any one religion yeah no you know what is it was it um i'm trying to remember the name of the physicist who said you know, good people will good people will do good things regardless of the situation. Bad people will do bad things regardless of the situation. To get really good people to do really bad things, you have to add religion. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an interesting idea it, it is. because what people try to do is they try to protect the sense that there is an integrity to their faith by saying anything that challenges that integrity in terms of its goodness, morality, and decency is therefore not the faith. Right. Rather than facing the darkness, right, which is what, I mean, which not for nothing, is what every single Christian desert father and mother said. Mm-hmm. Like going back to the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries, the Syrian fathers and mothers, the mystics of the church, every single one of them, without exception, said in order to uh, grow, to expand, to experience Spirituality or experience God, whoever you understand that, uh, you have to face the darkness. Yeah, you got to go sit out in the desert for a while.
1: Yeah, and, and let me just be clear. I think that was Keller's point too. It wasn't that yeah. Chris, that, that there were false Christians. Is that to be a Christian is to inherit a, a dark legacy on some level. Sure, and, and to yeah, and to own up to that kind of yeah. Um. So um. Yeah, this is great stuff. And might I add, while you were talking a little bit ago, I just recently I have a special love for werewolves in general, but one of my favorite <laughs> movies is Silver Bullet, actually. Um, yeah. The Stephen King adaptation, yeah. which is much different than this little graphic novella that he had originally right. published. But I recently showed it to my um, nine-year-old daughter, which probably was a mistake. It was probably a little soon for that. Uh, she had a couple nightmares, and my wife yelled at me for this. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, um, after the movie, she said... I wonder, Dad. Like, how come the werewolf seems to really be focused on people who are have drink alcohol a lot? And so I, I had n- I've seen that movie fifty times. And I never really noticed the motif of alcohol. And it has to. I mean, it reminded me of the the theodicy question uh, that you were talking about. So my little nine yeah. year old daughter picked up the kind of of the mouths <laughs> of babes. Eh? <laughs> Why are people suffering in this? Might it have something to do with beer, right? And so yeah, what, what it reminds, <laughs> what
0: that, what you remind, just reminded me of is this movie called Innocent Blood. I, I know, yes, uh, right. Harold and, Landis, and per- yes. And Perio as as the vampire. When I was a minister— John Landis, in, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> it, when I was a minister in southern Alberta, I was the United Church minister in a largely Mormon community, which is to say there were 5,000 people in town, 4,600 of them were Mormons, and I had the United Church. Okay. Right and uh there was a movie theater in town and i'd finished up work one night and you know before going you know i think i'll go see a movie and innocent blood was playing i was alone in the theater (laughs) seeing innocent blood and i still remember that opening scene she's looking through the newspaper and she's looking there's been like a mafia uh hit or something and she goes And she's talking about how she only, like, feeds on on evil people. Right. And she goes, I feel like Italian tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, these are all questions of, you know. (laughs) That's very karmic. Yes. That's like the karmic vampire right there. Yes. Uh, and
1: incidentally, my favorite movie is an American werewolf in London, and Innocent Blood mm-hmm. was John Landis's sort of attempted do horror comedy in the vampire genre later yeah. on. Yeah. A very underrated movie, by the way. Robert Loggia. It's it's a terrific
0: movie. Oh, he's, he's great in it. He's great in
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me uh, – one last uh, topic that you sort of cover is um, cosmology. And, and mm-hmm. you particularly point to a passage – a very short passage in It – where the kind of um the, the nature of the universe sort of is revealed in two right. pages or something. You want to talk a little bit about cosmology, theology, and Stephen King?
0: Sure. Well, i mean it this is where this is where religious socialization comes in too, because you know, it's a doorstop too. It's like a eleven hundred pages or something. Yeah. They're very thin, tiny print. There's two pages about three quarters of the way on when the the two members of the Losers Club are they have the same vision of it arriving and one of them says it's a spaceship and the other one who was raised in a very conservative church like homeschool like church school and very conservative church says no 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 it was something else it was like uh, an angel or satan or something and king goes on to to talk later about when it the creature or the entity or whatever it is starts to feel something that it's never felt before fear and time and pressure. And, uh, he remembers the time when all there was, was just it. And the great turtle, Mm. the great, the universe that there was the great turtle. And which I don't know if it's a nod to Terry Pratchett or not, Uh, but I was thinking turtles all the way down, but okay, go ahead. uh, uh, Yeah. But, (laughs) That two pages is his way of pointing to, again, maybe what we think of as going on in the universe is not only different than the stories that we've told to this point, but so different that we can't even imagine what it would be, right? And so you have... Any, even the small little bits and pieces of ritual, of belief, of practice, they all point to larger sort of implications for the way the world is and the way the world exists. When you think about the world into which Christianity was born, that is, that's not a shift in belief practice. That is a fundamental shift in cosmology, Mm. Right, It is not about this God's in command of that, that God's in command of this. We're going to ignore all these ones because they're Greek and we don't care about them. You've got one God overall controlling everything. That's a fundamental shift in cosmology. And what King keeps like with, uh, he does it in desperation, he does it under the dome, uh, he, where there is in fact no reason why these bad things happen. At the, in the end and under the dome. He does it in it. He's constantly pointing at every little thing that you think is going on implicates a potential difference in the much larger world order. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and that kind of paradigm shift is jarring to you know deeply held
0: beliefs right
1: boy is it ever yeah yeah which that,
0: which i think is one of the reasons that you know we talked at the very beginning about this isn't the gospel according to jesus according to jesus christ <laughs> this isn't the gospel according to uh, to stephen king because when people write books like that the gospel according to this the gospel what they are trying to do is make uncomfortable pop culture products palatable yeah so the gospel about harry potter the gospel of harry potter is not about finding christian readings of harry potter it's about making harry potter christian enough so that our kids don't have to read it behind our backs. Yes. It opens up a new market, basically, for it, it totally <laughs> does. It totally does, which is why I don't think there's bad publicity for a book like so people say the American Stark Theologian is a terrible book. <laughs> Other people will read it to it. So I'm good with that.
1: No, no, it's not a terrible book at all. It's wonderful, in fact. And I want to just say this too. You talked about how it's a, a popular form of academic um, work And I think that's true just in the price. So this is not a, a $300 yeah. uh, book that you have to special order. This is 30 bucks, I think. Uh, yeah, and, it's 30
0: bucks, American in hardcover. And can I just say the two? Uh, I'll give my own shout-out if I can. Sure. My own shout-out is to the edit, my editor at NYUP. is a woman named Jennifer Hammer, who I've known for many years. We've always wanted to kind of do something together. And uh, we came up with this idea, and I wrote the book. And I was so happy when they came out at that price point because I write explicitly for a crossover audience. Yeah, I don't write for other academics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, no, no. And I, I appreciate that is what I'm saying. I, I just wanted to think that's great. Yeah. Because uh, it's something we need to be doing more of. I mean, why else are uh, we absolutely. here? Right? Uh,
0: it, no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I look at a book. If I see an academic book that I really want or really need and it's 85 bucks, even I won't spend that kind of money on it. Right. Why I, would you? No, I know. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to say, so if you go to our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, I should probably that somehow but um, it's a little bit long But um, uh, I'll put the show notes For this show and in those show notes I will put A link to uh, where you can find this book um, And I'll put you right to the NYU link So as to not give Amazon any more business Than they deserve but uh, <laughs> um, But uh, yeah it, I really do I can't Recommend it enough um, Doug I Want to ask first of all thank you but um, I, I really feel like lately I've been desiring to Explore the intersections Between horror and religion more are there like are there journals that specialize in this or are there blogs that you recommend or is this a whole? Uh,
0: yeah, it's, it's a little bit scattered. It's a good question. It's a little bit scattered right now. There was a journal that, they tried to start a few years ago on monster theory yeah. and I wrote an article for it, but I I don't remember the name of the journal title, but I don't get the sense that it got very far. It's very difficult to get a journal off the ground. Um, what I would like, what I would like to see, and I'm totally open to doing this. If anybody is interested, um, there is a reason people don't read academic journals. Mm -hmm. They're hard to access because if you are not a member of the university community or you're not willing to pay the price for it, you can't access them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they are they are often articles in them are often very good, but they are just as often impossibly hard to read, sure, right They're just you know, they don't communicate very well. Um, what I would really like to see is um, more of an intersection with, with like popular magazines yeah. like Rue Morgue in Canada mm-hmm. inter are uh, interacting with academics more because what that will do is make what we, what I consider the public intelligibility, right. Yeah. Of what we do um, important or make it more available. Um, there's a, a, there's a crowdfunding thing that I'm involved with called, I think it's a sacred scared or scared sacred. Oh, nice. And it's this out of Britain with house of leaves publishing. And what they're doing is they're crowdfunding a, uh, a book, and I'm going to write the introduction for it, on the intersections of religion and horror. So there are people who are writing about it, but it hasn't coalesced to the point where there's a coherent theory around it. Um, and I've deliberate. I mean, I will write things for journals if they ask me, but I'm not going to waste my time – Writing an article for a journal when I can write a book just as well, right? That that you know a journal article that twelve people will read, right? Yeah, been there, (laughs) been there, been there, done that, and let me tell you, the shine wears off quick on that.
1: Yes, it does. Um, Well, please do uh, let me know. Keep me in mind. I am fascinated by this topic. I'm going to go back uh, when the semester's over and I have some more time and revisit your earlier books. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. um, As someone who um, has had to defend himself in his Christian in circles for his love of, of horror, and and uh, and this I think you've done a great job of giving me in ap- your own kind of apologetics here. So, um, okay. and, and and I think this has just been great. Doug Cowan, um, thank you so much for joining me uh, for this episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Listeners, uh, we have uh, the blog, we have the Facebook page, um, we have all sorts of places that you can feedback on the show. I really love you to uh, to to pass this one around. This book needs to be widely bought and, and consumed. I think lots of people are going to really enjoy it. I know I did. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for Doug Cowan to taking an hour out of his day to, uh, to talk to us about it today. So, Doug, you have a great day. And uh, everybody listening, uh, Danny Anderson, of uh, assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College, I should have said at the beginning, um, uh, saying goodbye and thank you for listening to the Sectarian Review
0: Review podcast.